this fast and troubled world, we sometimes lose our way. All right, this is a cool one. When I was a little kid, I watched American Bandstand because I liked the songs Dick Clark and his buddies selected for his top hits. Hey, it's what the kids want. Countdown. Based on what I heard, I walked down to the local music store, Ob Schmitz, with a dollar in coins and bought a 45. Being a fan of vocal harmonies, Beach Boys, Four Seasony stuff, I heard this version of I've Got Rhythm by The Happenings. Well, I had the honor of speaking with David Liebert, the baritone and arranger of The Happenings, a couple days ago, and he told me some cool stuff. He said the stereo separation he did was copying the mamas and papas. If you listen closely to this, you hear the lead vocal on the left and the, and the rest of the happenings happening on the right. I got the uh, information from John Lappin. You've got a book out called Rock and Roll Warrior. That's got to be good. Well, I hope so. The reviews have been terrific. You know, uh, when I Got Rhythm was out by The Happenings, I ran out and bought the 45 because I heard it on um, American Bandstand. Dick Clark had it on his top whatever list. So you're the guy that bought it. I was the one that bought that copy, yeah. I see that it sold over a million copies back then, too, so... Yeah. So it cost me a million bucks. (laughs) This book just sounds absolutely interesting, and it says uh, here to ask about Guns N' Roses. Okay. uh, Fire away. I'll uh, I'll turn no questions down. Yes. Start out at the beginning. You you formed a band with some high school guys, and you ended up in a whole world of rock and roll stuff as a tour manager and all kinds of different things. Yeah, I uh, after leaving the Happenings, the Happenings was a, a local uh, vocal pop group. Uh, we were out of Paddock, New Jersey, and we had a few big hits. Uh, as you mentioned, I Got Rhythm, See You in September, that was our biggest one. Uh, a remake of Go, Go Away, Little Girl, and uh, actually a remake of Al Jolson's song, My Mammy. Those were our four biggest records. To me, in those days, you sounded a little bit like the Four Seasons because they had a falsetto guy. Who, who sang the high parts? Uh, in the happenings? Yeah. Or uh, well, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. I know that one. Our lead singer, uh, Bobby Miranda, uh, sang the high parts when, uh, when necessary. I did as well. I was basically the baritone voice, but... Uh, you know, I would do uh, falsettos as well, and as well as uh, Bobby Miranda. But he was the lead singer, not me. Oh, God, you guys were great. But I, I did all the vo- I did all the vocal arranging. I I was influenced certainly by the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys, but I also listened to a lot of uh, the high the high lows, the Four Freshmen. Uh, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, that was sort of a jazz uh, uh, vocal group. Uh, the Double Six of Paris. So I had a lot of influences regarding the way I structured the harmonies for the happenings. What was your music background back then? Did, did you study it in school or did you just do what to do? I, uh, my parents said to me when I was about eight years old, you know, I said, I want to take piano lessons. I, uh, and they felt that I had 
some musical abilities. I played by ear and they said, okay, but listen, we'll get you piano lessons, but you can't quit till we say so. And so I agreed. And, uh, I hung in there for about eight years until I finally said, uh, that's it for me. My friends are out there playing basketball and having fun, and I'm tethered to this damn piano, practicing as much as two hours a day at that point. I said, I quit. Yeah, but you promised you would never quit. <laughs> well, I'm quitting, promises or not. But by that time, you know, I had the uh, my musical education it was under my belt. I had learned enough to be able to move forward uh, with a lot of different uh, musical endeavors over the course of my life. Time well spent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't become an NBA basketball player then? No, no, no. Music has a future. You can play it way into your old age. Yes, yes, that's true. I haven't been accused of being young for an awful long time. Yeah. So, but thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, what's in the book? I haven't had a chance to read it, so you're going to have to uh, fill me in. Well, it chronicles my five uh, decades plus of being in the music business. Uh, we just talked about the happenings. That's how I got into the business. And uh, I, after four years, I wasn't thrilled with the direction that the happenings were going in. They wanted to continue to play nightclubs and colleges where we had been very successful, but I felt that was not the future. The music world was changing. When we started, everything was AM radio. Now all of a sudden it was FM radio. Bands were uh, playing their own instruments. Although I always played an instrument, we had to evolve from a vocal group into a band, which we did. We always wrote our own, own songs, which uh, we did have some success. Uh, we wrote songs for the Chiffons, for Jerry and the Pacemakers, and for other people. But they didn't want to leave the uh, what it was that we were doing was basically a you know a, a club act a show act to play in nightclubs and on college campuses i wanted to apply our um, uh, ha harmony techniques to more contemporary things like sort of like what crosby stills and nash were doing and mm -hmm. uh, they they wouldn't hear of it so i left had a, some various jobs for the next couple of years and uh, house booker for a couple of clubs and worked for a manager for a year or so. Uh, uh, and then I uh, got a job as tour, uh, road manager for Rare Earth. Remember Rare Earth? Mm -hmm. They were a cool bunch of guys and that was a really nice gig. And then one day I got a call from Johnny Podell, Alice Cooper's booking agent. Alice Cooper, the band, was looking for a new tour manager. I got the job, and uh, I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. I, it just seemed like a, my first gig, it was just insanity. It seemed to me that uh, there was like 30 or 40 wild, crazy-looking people just crawling all over all the gear and equipment like giant insects. And <laughs> I said, oh, God, what did I get myself into? I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life. But, of course, I didn't after about a week. Uh, I started to get the hang of it, and uh, it turned out to be, you know, a dream job, actually. And basically learned everything I knew about the business from Alice's manager, Shep Gordon. Shep and, Gordon. of course... Yeah, the Superman, the legend. Yeah, I know. Uh, I learned 
I learned so much from him, and so much so that after I left Alice Cooper, I was able to carry on uh, in the business. And I opened up a booking agency and represented uh, the Runaways and Harlem and Funkadelic, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Evelyn Champagne King, the Dead Boys. Uh, that was a trip. Uh, <laughs> and then I evolved into personal management and managed Vanilla Fudge and Living Color and George and uh, uh, and Boosie and all of the uh, uh, funk mob variations. Um, uh, so that is what uh, we did all of that up until just a few years ago when I just was just tired of it all. I just sort of got burnt out, you know, 50 plus years of sex, drugs and rock and roll can, uh, you know, tire you out. So uh, basically today I'm a, uh, I've retired. I live in the uh, desert about 120 miles east of uh, Los Angeles. And I've become amazingly an animal rights activist. That's a cool thing to do. As we, as we are talking right now, I am ensconced and canines surrounded by dogs <laughs> five of them that's my upbringing my father was a veterinarian around a lot of pooches as the years went on and we always had one or two ourselves at home to me uh dogs are the the uh, one of the best things this world has to offer and for that reason alone they deserve the best that we can give them and i have uh, terrific dogs here they, you know, you give them love and care and they give you so much more back. So it's a, it's a, it's a very good thing. I'm pleased. That's an interesting story that after all, all you've been through, you're an animal activist. Well, you know, even in the book, there's a, uh, there's a chapter about Dolly the dog. That was my dog when I started working for Alice Cooper. And part of the deal was they all lived in this big sort of rundown mansion in Connecticut's. Uh, known as the Galicia State in Greenwich, Connecticut. Part of the deal was when I went on tour, Dolly the dog, my beagle hound, plus uh, all the uh, animals that belonged to the roadies and the band and their girlfriends, they all stayed up at the Galicia State, and there was a, a caretaker that would care for them uh, while everybody was on tours. We knew, so we knew they were being well taken care of, having a great time at several acres of fenced in uh, uh, land to play and have a good time and hang out with the other dogs. So it was a, it was a very good situation for the dogs when we were on tour. They lacked of, from nothing. <laughs> Dog heaven. Poochie paradise. <laughs> when you mentioned Shep Gordon, this always cracked me up because he was Ann Murray's manager as well. And she's like the polar opposite of, Alice Cooper music. What was it? Did you know much about that? I think he liked the challenge, and uh, I think he wanted to bring her, uh, you know, more into the mainstream. And uh, uh, he was very, very clever. Shep is uh, a very imaginative guy, and I think he turned her entire career around by somehow or other staging a Thanksgiving photo. And there she is, Anne Murray, the complete opposite of Alice Cooper, <laughs> hanging with uh, John Lennon, Harry Nielsen, and Alice Cooper at some yeah. 
Oh my God! Bars tonight, <laughs> and that was that instantly changed everybody's impression of uh, Anne Mary. Of course, she loved it too. That's what Shep liked to do. He liked challenges. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, those are three wild and crazy guys. There, I, I don't know too much about Alice Cooper. Uh, he seems like, you know, back in the day with the makeup and everything on, he was pretty radical. But nowadays, he'd fit right in. I would if I saw him at the store, I wouldn't blink an eye. No, he. Uh... <laughs> And he, you know, he's you know, he's not a crazy guy, and yeah. I don't think anybody thinks he is anymore. I mean, he's married, he has grandkids, uh, he's been married for the same woman for forty-four years, and he likes to play golf. I mean, you know, he doesn't spend his time bludgeoning uh, kittens <laughs> or puppies, which is what people thought back in those days. I, I heard a story that uh, Groucho Marx saw him and just thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen. So they became buddies. They became buddies. Well, that's a perfect example of another thing. Shep Gordon was Groucho Marx's uh, manager. Oh, and, uh, I didn't know that. They loved, they loved playing off of each other, Alice and Groucho. You know, I remember uh, there was a dinner and... Uh, some kind of honoring Groucho Marx and Chef made up some ridiculous uh, award to give him. And he had Alice presented to him. He took the award. He looked at it and he said to Alice, what the hell am I supposed to do with this thing? What is it? <laughs> you know, they, they loved, uh, you know, uh, belittling. Yeah. It's funny, Alice Cooper and, uh, and uh, Groucho Marx. Alice was friendly with George Burns as well. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, too. I don't know Played why. Played golf with Terry Coco. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him on uh, a production of Jesus Christ Superstar with John Legend. And he played King Herod, I guess. Was, yeah, he came out in a tuxedo, and he was perfect for it. My God, he almost stopped the show to me. I'd like to say uh, maybe 25% of the book is devoted to... Um, my history with Alice Cooper and uh, uh, whether you're an Alice Cooper fan or not, I think uh, uh, anyone would get a big kick out of sort of uh, being privy to the inner workings of it all, sort of being a fly on the wall while, you know, these Alice and this crazy bunch of people, including me, I suppose, uh, <laughs> flew all over the world in their big giant plane and, you know, just lived a life that most people can only imagine, dream of. Uh, I'm envious. I think maybe another, another 20% is devoted to George Clinton and uh, Parliament Funkadelic and Bootsy. Um, I think, you know, I didn't want the book to be a, you know, a tell-all, salacious uh, kind of book. I, I just didn't want it to be that. I, I really didn't want to, you know, throw anybody under the bus or, yeah. you know, I th if I threw anybody under the bus, I suppose, even though I also said some really, really nice things about him in the book, because he's a good guy and uh, would have to be George Clinton, which almost couldn't be helped because he, he was just so outrageous that some of the stuff just had to go in the book, uh, <laughs> if for no other reason, just to be able to paint an accurate picture of of who George really was and is. So, uh, but most people find the book uh, very amusing and informative and uh, 
feel that uh, it's got a nice flow to it. It's a fun read. Carmine, a piece you mentioned, Vanilla Fudge. Uh, for you listeners, he was a drummer of Vanilla Fudge. He wrote a book called Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. And I think the only person he really spoke about, maybe that you could consider on a, um, on a negative side, was Sharon Osbourne. She didn't like it because he was such a showy drummer. And, of course, Ozzy was the, the lead guy. You know, he was the front man. And they had a, I don't know, some yeah. deal where he almost got burnt by the pyrotechnics and stuff because she changed something during the show and his drum stage was in the wrong place or something like that. You want to know that story anyway. But, yeah, Sharon Osbourne was his arch nemesis of all people <laughs> no i didn't i didn't know about that uh, carmine and i are best of friends today i mean i love the guy ironic because the, my first encounter with him was when the happenings actually opened up uh was a support act for a vanilla fudge show in uh, in new jersey uh, i was looking forward to it and uh, we go to do the show and and uh, Vanilla Fudge is just ignoring us like we had the plague. Uh, they uh, they wouldn't even acknowledge our existence being there. And uh, I said, well, I'll show these guys. Come on, let's go out there. We're going to do the show of our lives. We'll show those guys. So uh, we did. We did a fabulous show. Um, and then they came out and didn't unbelievable show so i guess the people got their money's worth that <laughs> night and i don't know why they were ignoring us you know they had been on the road for a couple of years and uh they for most of the time believe it or not led zeppelin was their support act oh yeah so i so i guess socializing with the lowly happenings was not <laughs> high on the list of things to do Whatever the reason was. How old were you guys then? 23, 24, something like that. When you're that age, you don't think of just doing a courteous hello to somebody, you know. You're probably maybe shy and a little little naive. Yeah, I I think it was a snub. Yeah, you really say hello. You you acknowledge somebody. Yeah, otherwise you're just being rude. So they were snubbing you? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they didn't feel well. Maybe they were exhausted for some. Whatever the reason was, they... They uh, they didn't acknowledge us. Now today, Carmine and I are the best of friends. I did end up managing the band many years later for for quite a while. And uh, as I said in the book, Carmine never gets tired of doing the following. I'm a bit of a sports buff, so I'll be, you know, watching a, a football game or a basketball game or so. He likes sports too. He he pretends that he doesn't. So that gives him the opportunity if he's with someone, if there's like 30 seconds ago and a game is on the line and he's aware of it, he'll pick up the phone and call me just <laughs> to hear the following. If he loves to hear it, I'll pick up the phone. I mean, I know it's him. I'll say, whoever this is, you're either a musician, you're English, you're gay, you're a gay English musician, you're a woman, or you're Carmine a piece because who the hell else would call me at a time like this? <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he, he 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 never gets tired of doing that. <laughs> Did he laugh? We're pretty close. <laughs> I've spoken with him a few times. He doesn't laugh at a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good guy. 
Yeah, he seems like a total pro. I mean, you better show up, know your parts, and, and know what you're doing because that sounds sounds like what you know he what? does. He, he's got more uh, a, a not he's got a greater knowledge of the inner workings of the music industry than any artist I've ever worked with, which makes it a lot easier actually to do things with that artist because yeah. they know what you're doing. Wow, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, good guy. So I'm according to this thing, and it's in parentheses, but I'm still going to do it. Ask David about Guns N' Roses story, um, the one that got away. Okay, I got a call one night from Tim. Let me just uh, <laughs> my publisher. Oh, okay. Asking yeah, th this isn't live, um, so you can do whatever you want to do. I can edit it out. Well, that's okay. I'll, I'll call him back. Yeah, sure. Um, I get a call from Kim Fowley one night. Kim Fowley, the no notorious uh, manager, producer of the Runaways. Mm -hmm. And um, he says to me, uh, go over to uh, this um, storage unit. There's a bunch of bands actually living in the storage units. That's where they live. Check out this band, Guns N' Roses. And uh, he says, uh, you might be interested in uh, you know, possibly managing them. So I went over to the storage unit and uh, I was very impressed with them. They were, uh, they were fantastic and they had this presence. I've never really seen on any other band. They, their mindset was individually or collectively. They were simply never not guns and roses. They were always guns and roses. And that kind of, uh, you know, a mental state or consciousness about yourself is a very infectious thing. And I think uh, uh, it, it intoxicated anybody that went anywhere near them. It, you just knew that these guys were the real deal. They were simply never not Guns N' Roses. So, yeah, I, I wanted to manage them. And uh, I figured the first thing I got to do is, uh, get them out of this storage unit where they live and party and, and go crazy. And as crazy as they used to go every night, they were extremely disciplined. They uh, practiced for hours a day. They they didn't let anything interfere with their, uh, you know, with their uh, musical discipline. It was very impressive. Um, but they couldn't really, I had to get them out of there. I had to really find them a house to to live in. I mean, rehearsing at a storage unit is fine, but living there really isn't. There's no running water and oh, wow. that kind of thing. It's, so I went to my brother, who was a doctor, who was a doctor in Florida, and uh, brought him uh, the demo tape, which is was virtually the exact same uh, as exactly the same as the Appetite for Destruction almost note for note. And I, I gave him the tape. I said, listen, I'll make a deal with you. Um, give me 20 grand. I will give you 20% of the management of Guns N' Roses and, uh, you know, in return. And I'll, and the, uh, I'll also pay back the 20 grand. So he says, all right, let me think about it. And I didn't hear from him for a while. I finally got him on the phone. He said, well, you know, my accountant thinks it's a, not a good deal. Very, very risky to, to uh, invest $20,000 in a band that 
nobody knows who they are. <laughs> and also, he says, I played it for my 16-year-old kid, my son. He said, this band needs a lot of work. They're not ready for big time. Uh, so he, um, he, passed, he passed on the deal I offered him. And incidentally, I never spoke to my brother again. And within a year, Guns N' Roses was like the biggest thing in the world. That's the one that got away. Ouch. Oh, my God. I mean, I had to walk away from the situation because I really couldn't help them in any way. I, I didn't really have any money at that time. And I just had, you know, I had to get him off the street and support him for a few months. I knew what was right around the corner. I wasn't concerned. But... Under the circumstances, I had to walk away. That's the one that got away. Oh, that's a big one, too. That's a tough one. The business has, as you know, gotten really weird. It's amazing anybody makes any money at all anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty rough. You know, way back when, people wanted to be in the band. They wanted fame and fortune. That's almost not possible today. It, yeah. it better be your love of music and uh, touring and playing in front of people. That is your uh, motivation because the chances of becoming rich and famous is pretty slim these days. David Liebert had such a long and interesting career in the music business. His friends encouraged him to write a book about it. So he did. The result is an autobiography. It's 50 plus years in the making aptly entitled Rock and Roll Warrior, recently released on Sunset Boulevard Books. It's a chronicle of David's inner life in the music industry as a popular international performer, singer-songwriter, tour manager, booking agent, producer, and drug dealer on the Sunset Strip. It's a story of a wild so crazy. It sounds like a pretty crazy-ass book. He was uh, Alice Cooper's road manager on top of everything else, which sounds like a blast to me. But anyway, so cool, he wrote a book on his experiences. Summer 